the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. How are you, Lindsay? I'm excited for you yeah. for this episode. I, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm pretty excited that that this is going down. You've been waiting what a season and a half now yeah. to do to finally do 1979's Walter Hill's The Warriors. And I think it's appropriate that we waited because it's now the 40th anniversary of The Warriors release. So we've got a lot going on this episode. Lots to talk about with The Warriors and uh, Mr. Walter Hill, the writer director. For such a simple, straightforward movie, there sure is a lot going on underneath all of it. And this movie really has become, I mean, just like a massive cult hit. I mean, this is, people are still talking about it. There's been, you know, multiple, like many documentaries made about the release of The Warriors. And uh, a lot went on. I don't think this was a movie that anybody thought was going to be this like everlasting sort of like cultural phenomenon that it became you know it's not like yeah the size of like back to the future jaws or something like that but it's it's made a significant mark i think on pop culture that's something it seems like happens with cult movies is they they start out as these little babies and passion projects and pretty much everyone loves what they're working on and they never expect it to blow up into what it what it does and uh just kind of rewatching the movie for the for this episode over the past few weeks, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this movie really still holds up pretty well. I mean, it still plays pretty strong. I mean, it's certainly slower than modern films, and there's certainly uh, Man, some... it's from the 70s. Yeah, it's from the 70s. <laughs> you know, you're going to have some cornball scenes and that kind of stuff, but I think overall, I mean, it's still a very enjoyable, uh, fun watch. I'm going to go ahead and confess right now, Justin, and maybe I'm going to get knocked down a few few pegs in your eyes right now. I've always been aware of this movie. I've known what it's about for the most part, but I've never actually put in the time until now to actually watch it. Yeah, and so I mean, there's plenty of movies that, you know, I've I've missed along the way. But I will say the more times that I watch this, and I watched it I think probably about 4 times before this. Man, by that fourth time, I'm a big old fan, and I started out the the first viewing and I, you know, you and I talked about this and, you know, had our initial meeting about it. And I was, um, I was still kind of like conflicted or like working through it. And then the next few times watching it really just fell in love with the characters more and more. And I don't know if that's other people's experience too, like the more that you watch it or if people just love it the first time that they see it. It, uh, it really grows on you. It does. What really seduced me for this movie is the atmosphere. Yeah. Atmosphere and just vibe. It was um, for as unrealistic as it is, it feels real. It yeah. seems yeah. like like strange it's to got, say. It's but got that late 70s grit all yeah. over it. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. We'll definitely talk about Walter Hill, his career, because this was uh, pretty early in his career as a writer-director. And uh, really, 1979 being like a real launching pad for him. Oh, um, yeah. With uh, producing Alien Alien. and having a pretty big involvement in that movie and 
putting out the Warriors, and he had already had a few features under his belt. We'll talk about uh, the production of the movie because there's a lot that went on. There's a lot that's been documented on this movie. We'll talk about the style of the movie. Um, definitely it's location of New York City because this yeah. is one of those movies that's really, really went and shot on location. And I mean, they, they went out of their way to like, I mean, it's like super specific to New York. Very All much the way so. down to like some of the names of the gangs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this movie is often brought up as a very New York film. And what I remember thinking about New York when I when I was a kid, like this is what I envisioned and like what I thought was so cool, man. I want to go to New York is what is what the Warriors yeah. is. We'll probably even talk about the usage of violence or the how it compares to Walter Hill's use of violence later in his career. Yeah, yeah, and how, I mean, this movie is relatively tame comparative to yeah. what he did later in his career. And I also think this movie, to, to me, one of the reasons why I've always liked this movie and one of the reasons why I want to do it, not just it being the 40th anniversary, of course, but because it is about a seemingly sinister part of life, you know, like a gang for the most part, <laughs> you know, everything we know about real gangs, it's like they deal drugs and they, you know, kill each other. And they're, you know, there's, there's a lot of horrible stuff that goes on. Um, that's like intermingled with gangs, but this is one of those movies. that's it, it like kind of like doesn't include any of that. It's yeah. sort of this like more cartoony glorified version. This is one of those movies that you watch and you're like, Oh, it'd be kind of like cool to yeah. get a gang going <laughs> here. You know what I mean? Like this makes we me want to be in a gang. You know, we could get into like some like uh some like bras, but like nobody would like walk away like having to go to the like the ER or anything. Yeah. Um you know, don't get me wrong, there's some serious fights that go on, but no you know it's, Nobody's it's, taking out no, on and, a stretcher no, though. Yeah, no one's like, you know, <laughs> pulling out a gun for the most part we'll, we'll get into that we'll also get into our uh picks of the week um i stayed very walter hill centric man it took me a while to do this one because there's some <laughs> movies of his that i was more familiar with yeah that i liked when i was younger but then uh i rewatched them and they do feel a little more dated and i kept going back to southern comfort which was a movie that i think is one of more his least familiar films but actually upon like watching a few times i think it might be one of his better films and so I went with uh, 1981 Southern Comfort with Powers Booth and Fred Ward and Keith Carradine. I really liked that movie. I watched that too. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I had not heard of it. Of course, some there are a lot of familiar faces in it, uh, considerably younger. And what was your pick of the week? It was not Walter Hill, but I did brush up on a lot of Walter Hill for this. Uh, no, my I, I went with the gangs who, who were wronged vibe. And I went with uh, a movie from 1996 called Foxfire. It was a pretty formative movie in my my youth. I remember watching that one in college, and mm -hmm. that was like a f my introduction to Angelina Jolie. A lot of people's introduction. Yeah. That that and Hackers, I think. Yeah, Hackers. Wow. <laughs> Give me time. I'll talk about Hackers yeah, one well, of these days. I'm certain that you will. <laughs> well, as always, we'll round things out with a Murray moment. But before we go into our first clip, Lindsay, as always, can you? Uh, kind of like lay out what the story of the Warriors is for us before we get into our first clip? Yes, of course, I'd love to. In a lot of ways, the plot of the Warriors is very simple and straightforward and makes it really enjoyable just to experience the ride. So basically, um, it's about when all of the gangs of New York City get together for a meeting 
um, that's called by the leader or emissary, I guess, of all the gangs known as Cyrus. Um, he brings all the gangs together under the idea that we're calling a truce, that there's going to be no more fighting and everyone is just kind of worked together as one to, I think, like, kind of take over the city. And it's not really explored, but basically the idea is let's all work together. But when one group known as the Rogues guns down Cyrus in the middle of this meeting and then very, very loudly calls out that it's the warriors that did it, um, all hell breaks loose. Any type of truce, anything that they were all going to work together is completely obliterated. And so the rest of the film is a giant chase sequence of um, the warriors running away and all of these gangs all over New York that are hell-bent on tracking the warriors down and making them pay. And I think it was kind of you to say all the gangs were there because we rightly know that the orphans didn't even know. They were so low. They were so low on the totem pole. They didn't even know there was a meeting going on. Poor orphans. They don't get any respect. They're like the Rodney Dangerfield of New York gangs. (laughs) I mean, that leader of the orphans, though. Yeah. What a punk. Yeah. And they got straight razors. That's what you're going to that's you're going to bring to a fight. Come on, man. Wash your pants. That's all I got to say to that guy. They later, uh, they they later had kids, and those kids uh, became the international rock band, The Strokes. <laughs> we'll go to our first clip from the Warriors. Now look what we have here before us. We've got the Saracens sitting next to the Jones Street Boys. We've got the Moon Runners right by the Van Cortlandt Rangers. Nobody is wasting nobody. That is a miracle. And miracles is the way things ought to be. You're standing right now with nine delegates from a hundred gangs. And there's over a hundred more. That's 20,000 hardcore members, 40,000 counting affiliates, and 20,000 more not organized, but ready to fight. 60,000 soldiers. Now there ain't but 20,000 police in the whole town. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? So The Warriors was a very low-budget film. Uh, and sometimes I think that budget kind of shows on the screen a little bit. But overall, I think this is like a very uh, cinematic and like tightly woven film uh, with very tight act- action sequences. And some of that may seem dated today, but at the time, I think, Walter Hill's use of slow motion and the choreography of the fight scenes was pretty unique and, and kind of hard hitting. Those slow motion shots though are very particular and it's yeah, not, it's very... not like a long sequence. It's like a particular moment. Yeah. One specific shot, which is know. very, yeah. w- is very 70 makes it more effective. Yeah. yeah. And slow-mo definitely got cheesed up pretty hardcore after the 80s and 90s where you almost like predicted it it's like this is like these aren't predictable yeah these aren't predictable because they happen in the middle of in the middle of a sequence yeah Yeah. exactly 
and um, from script to screen, The Warriors was only about a year in length uh, from once they got the movie off the ground. Mm-hmm. But uh, prior to that, the the movie was based off a book, and it had a little bit longer history before uh, Walter Hill was hired to sort of co-op the script a little bit and, and direct. Yes. So The Warriors isn't exactly like an original story. It's based off a very, very old Greek fable story called Anabasis, which then was, um, I guess that's the original, original story. And then in 65, um, there was a novel uh, by the same name, The Warriors, written by Sol Urich. Um So that came out in 65, and that was more in-depth. While it is basically the story of The Warriors, it went a little bit more in-depth, as books typically do. And I'll even talk about that in my pick of the week. But four years later, the rights to that novel were bought by the American International Pictures. No film came of that. So then Lawrence Gordon commissioned David Schraber to write a script for the story bot. And Gordon had previously worked with Walter Hill on Hard Times and The Driver. So they were already friends and familiar with each other. And basically, that's kind of how the start of of the Warriors began. So Gordon and Hill knew that they wanted to make a movie together and they had been thinking about a Western, specifically Walter Hill, and, you know, went to Paramount with this idea to make the Warriors more of a Western film. And Paramount was like, you know what? People aren't into that right now. We're really into youth films. This is what we would, if you want to do this, recraft it and come back to us. So that's basically what happened, and the end result is is what we see in, in The Warriors. And in the original book, the most of the gangs, or pretty much all the gangs, are Hispanic and African-American, but the studio yeah. uh, didn't think that that would be uh, a viable selling point. They didn't think the movie would be successful. So Walter Hill was fine with making you know some of the central characters white and making mm-hmm. it like this sort of like racially mixed gangs uh which is not typical of gangs you know in real life but because of that Walter Hill didn't really s- see how this could be a realistic film so that's when he sort of decided you know I'm going to go with this sort of like cartoony comic book version of like gang life and so he kind of got on that comic book idea and so a Mm -hmm. lot of this a lot of the movie is sort of like supposed to be kind of like comic booky and and Walter Hill ultimately did want to do these sort of like comic book frame outs of characters um but they just didn't have the technology or the budget for it which Mm -hmm. he did eventually there's like an ultimate quote-unquote director's cut of the warriors where he did make that uh, change and uh, not really to the enlightenment of any fans of the Warriors. <laughs> I haven't I, heard anyone it's, say it's that. It's very thing. hard to find anyone who will defend the ultimate director's cut of the Warriors. And uh, sadly, that's the version that's like mainly available. It was like the only version they've ever put out on Blu-ray, unfortunately. is It's harder to find the original it's cut? Hard, it's not hard to find the original cut on DVD you know, on eBay or like Amazon, you okay. can get it for like $8, but to find it like locally anywhere, usually there's only the ultimate director's cut and on Blu-ray, the theatrical cut has never been released on Blu-ray, Okay, which is okay. really makes a lot of people like myself that love Blu-ray and want yeah. to see like the high res version of the Warriors <laughs> yeah. uh, or stuck with the director's cut. <laughs> it is really awesome to me the to see the evolution of the story and see how you know, the studio wants things changed and Walter Hill was cool with that and, and changing those things and seeing how it evolved 
the story, whatever it resulted in in the director's cut later, sure. But the 79 version is somewhat unexpected for the time. Like watching it for the first time, I didn't necessarily get a comic book feel out of it. I think you brought up to me earlier with the, um, what is it, the fades? Oh, like the the wipes. That the they wipes, do. yeah. yeah. With, with the wipes, it was very like Star Wars, you know, like turning a chapter. And I, I get that, and I totally felt that watching it. I didn't get the comic book vibe, but it, I for sure felt the unrealistic vibe and that this was somewhat of a fable, yeah, fantasy. Yeah, and when I think there's a lot of like some of like the the radio DJ, there you know, things are lit in a very like colorful way. The colors are incredible. Uh, you know, and yeah. even the uh, like the riffs when they're coming down the elevator and then you have all these like sort of karate guys lined up. You know, I, I immediately think like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, I felt like you know, video game. Yeah, watch, it, and it, it was does, a video yeah, game. It was a video game, yeah. yeah. So the Warriors, I, I think, you know, but I, I do think that they kind of tapped into that. What You know, what the studio wanted was a sort of like youth-driven film. And I think by shooting in New York and by only using New York actors, which they were really... Uh, and we'll get into the cast, but they were very specific about we're not going to bring in people from L.A. We're only going to cast New York actors because we don't want to bring in any sort of like Los Angeles vibe to this very New York centric film. And I do think that that's where the film's strengths are. And I was uh, talking to my friend Annie, who lives in Brooklyn, and she's never seen The Warriors and. I was like, oh man, you gotta check this movie out. Because mm-hmm. she was telling me about riding the subway and how far, how long it takes. You know, and it's like if I want to go see a movie in this part of the city, it, you know, and the geography is so much bigger. And when I was younger, I never really not seen a map of New York. Yeah, this movie kind of lays it out. It's like pretty far. It's, I mean, it's it's, it's like, awesome. It really it's does. Like thirty something miles. You know, thirty something miles. And if even on even by train, subway, it's gonna take you you know, an hour or so to get back for them to get back to Coney Island. But it really, I, I think the movie does really a good job of like, if, if you're, if you open up a map in New York after watching the Warriors, it's kind of interesting how everything's so sp- sp- specific of like with Gramercy Park and like where they're at and all these different spots that they stop and they have to get off the train. Like I was saying before, this, this movie is very much like a, a journey and we, we start out in one place at, at this meeting, we start out in the Bronx, and then it turns into a chase movie, and all the warriors are trying to do is get back to Coney Island. And the them the the chase sequences, yes, are, are part of it, but it's almost like every time that they get into a subway car or any time that they're running to the next platform, like that's the jumping off point. It's almost like that's where the video game starts. And we see, a, you know, a couple times they're looking at the map inside you know, inside the train car. And it's just like, it feels like such a video game and it is such a journey and exhausting in some ways it, in the best way. It but is. It's yeah. Exhausting. You, do, you do feel like you're there with them. And one thing that I really appreciate that this movie does, I think that it would, f- it would feel more dated now if it did this, but it did this, it could have used this, the, the cat and mouse thing where, you know, which was huge in the nineties. And when I go back and watch nineties movies where it's just like, a group you know one person being pursued by somebody else or like a group of people being pursued by somebody else yeah there's like that 40 minute lag where you're just kind of like oh they're just being chased and they're trying to figure out how to get away from this person and watching the warriors like i was like oh is that gonna feel like this you know kind of like watching it several times but it doesn't and i think the key to them not 
the key for it not feeling cat and mouse is that they break, they just, dis, they disperse the characters, they break them apart, they break up the team. So it kind of feels like different situations happening to different members of the gangs yeah. in different parts of the city. It's not just like them as a group being chased yeah. for 90 straight minutes. Yeah. But essentially it's a 90 minute chase film. And with being a 90 minute chase film, it's not to say that the warriors don't have interact, that they're just being chased. Um, they definitely have numerous interactions with the other gangs and police and, you know, even, even kind of not kidnap, but um, take with them a member of one of the other, one of the other orphans. I don't know if she's really an orphan, but she certainly associates, associates herself. Definitely associated. Yeah. Yeah. It's insinuated that she's like prostituting for them. Yes. Yeah. This does lead us into, you know, some violence. It's funny to me that, um, this movie was considered so violent for the time, but there is one gun in in the whole thing, and the gun is the catalyst for everything happening, and that's when Cyrus is murdered in the beginning. But the the rest, everything else, are these kind of beautifully choreographed, almost, I don't want to say dance sequences, but like the fight sequences are elegantly gritty in some way, yeah. you know, because they are... They're they're very real, and I and I think the actors went to some type of like stunt training because they yeah. they weren't uh, there weren't any stunt people really for this too much. Well, and, and even though the fight scenes are gritty, they they do it, it's choreographed in the way of like people face off and they they look at their opponent and there's those beats before they fight. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, because it's not and because they they're choreographed in a way like you said, like almost like a dance move. Yeah, you feel like you get a sense of like the geography of where they're fighting and also like what's going on. I never feel really lost. Like, wait, what happened? What, what warriors fighting right now? Like movies nowadays, they, there's about 2 million cuts. So half the time, if you have more than three people fighting, I just, I don't even know what's going on. It's like I, the guy with the black jacket's yeah. fighting. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the fight sequences, whether it is straight up hand to hand, like the bathroom scene, the bathroom scene is one of my favorite fight sequences and the kind of maybe softer sequence fight sequence with the baseball furies, which is basically using bats instead of swords. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's, it's kind of comical, but it's also really fun to watch too. It's fun. Like upon like a second or third viewing of this, just to kind of watch the, uh, kind of weaponry that they give the <laughs> yeah. characters. Cause like yeah. the first gang that like tries to, chase the warriors it's like they're all like hanging on this like they're all like sort of like uncomfortably hanging on this like big truck and one guy's like holding like a gigantic <laughs> two by four which you know just doesn't seem practical you know no. if you're like gonna if you're like <laughs> going to hunt down and like fight somebody but i love you know and even at the end uh when the riffs um kind of let the warriors uh yeah they they every, they've cleared the air and you know they're gonna take care of the the rogues a lot of the riffs are like holding like hockey sticks mm-hmm. and it's it's just like a very strange three viewings and I didn't see one person with a golf club. Oh, that's just, strange, n- Just right? not, not a very uh, gritty New York uh, weapon yeah. to have, golf club. <laughs> golf clubs weren't, weren't really a hot commodity, but just, yeah, basically anything you could, I, I would believe someone had a lamp, you know, or, or a phone something just any like anything that you pick up that could be used as a weapon i would would believe for but, this movie. but you make a good point about the gun because it is you know the gun is only used by luther and he is like 
like the scumbaggiest villain character in this whole movie. We'll, we'll talk about and, Luther. All and, right. And both times, you know, it's like, and you know, and even at the end, the confrontation, he brings a gun to a knife fight and uh, loses, <laughs> you know, and you, and you kind of see like what a like sort of like petulant and like grubby gross character he is and how like, he's not a tough guy at all. No. He just sort of like screams out and starts yeah. crying he after, out after he gets sure. like, you know, a knife stuck in his arm, which, you know, I'm certain would hurt. I'm yeah. sure I'd have a similar reaction, but uh, not after being a tough guy for 90 minutes and yeah, kind of like bossing people around. You see he's a total ween in that. In that instant, you realize, I mean, if you haven't figured it out before that he's a total kind of pissant little character that's half a bubble off plum and a little crazy, yeah. um, you definitely know it right at the end of the movie. But I think it's I think it's a good point to make that there there really is not a lot of gun violence in this movie. I don't necessarily think that was some sort of like point that they were trying to make, but I do think that you wouldn't really be able to have these like like you said elegant fight scenes if mm-hmm. everybody was just like sporting guns. Like there would just be a bunch of like gunfire scenes, and it, yeah. it actually is kind of nice to see a movie where the Warriors is not a very loud movie, you know, mm-hmm. because. I watch movies now and, you know, you got it, especially when I'm wearing headphones and I'm watching movies like gunfire movies is like extremely loud and, yeah. and kind of unnerving. And sometimes like after I'm watching an action movie, you're just like, man, it's just it's like so I'm on it, 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 I'm on edge. Not, not, not that it's a bad thing. It works for some movies, but I do like the quiet, like the quietness of the warriors and it gives it that gives the movie time to breathe. It's not like everybody's just like whipping out guns and shooting mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. No, that is a really, really good point. Well, while we're on the subject of talking about these uh, fight sequences between the warriors and all the gangs, it should be said, like, one of the most impressive things about this is, and I, and I think it's easy to forget because all of the gangs become such the entire landscape of the movie, that their costuming is pretty friggin' cool. Like, down to their patches and emblems and just... And I would venture to say that all of those costumes were one of a kind because that's a hell of a lot of work to go into all of that. And I can't imagine duplicates on this budget yeah. um, being made. Yeah, I feel like the Warriors and the Baseball Furies kind of have the like the most awesome costumes. And, you know, and certainly some of them I think are almost like supposed to be funny. I feel like some They've of gotta the be. costuming, you know, there's like mimes, you know, like... <laughs> mimes like almost or like if you're like me and afraid of painted white faces the mimes yeah. can be the most terrifying um, one and the riffs have like this very you know the guys wearing like mirrored sunglasses and uh they're all wearing you know it's like very like a like kung fu movie you know like they're wearing oranges and reds and like blacks and, yeah uh that's the one that like you don't you don't mess with them yeah you don't mess with the riffs no you know <laughs> and and they definitely seem to have like the largest number of of gang members out of all the gangs in New York. You know, I don't know if if you found this little tidbit or not, but there was one scene and and the production did have a little bit of issue with actual gangs that were you know, real that were uh, uh, yeah. around. They had they had a few run-ins but nothing too major. Uh, I think but, Coney Island they had like the roughest time. The police actually said it's cool if you guys film here. But if you're going to be up on this track, the subway platform, and you're going to eat down at this restaurant, we're going to need you to take off your colors in order yeah. to go down there and do that, or else you're going to really upset this gang. Yeah, I saw an interview <laughs> with James Remar, and he was talking about uh, 
getting in, trying to get in character and, you know, the mm-hmm. warriors are from Coney Island. So he went down to Coney Island for a few days and there was one of the carnival workers down there mm-hmm. and he said, Hey, you know, question like what kind of people hang out down here? What are the kind of people that hang out in Coney Island or live in Coney Island? And the guy just like immediately said without like even pausing, like the worst kind, <laughs> you know, and he just thought that was like really great. Like, a, a his impression of like Coney yeah. Island, you know, it's like these sort of like, yeah. Very like rug rat kind of characters. And I did hear too that they in the in, in the beginning sequence when we've got all of these representative all of these representatives from gangs um at this meeting that, that there were gang actual real gangs that were kind of hanging out around there. But for the for the most part, the actors were like all in their early twenties. Yeah. And the people in gangs were like teenagers, were like fifteen. Yeah. So it's not really like, I mean, there was a lot of talk and there was a lot of bravado and like that sort of thing, but there wasn't really too much going down. They were, they were kind of uh, what I heard James Remar say that they were actually kind of respectful in, in some ways, even though there were some, you know, there, there was some crap talking. Yeah. But well, let's go to another clip When we come back. We'll talk a little bit about Walter Hill's career and then we'll talk about the cast. Wait a couple of seconds after we move, then cut out the other way. Why can't I stay with you? Just do what I tell you, okay? Come on. I can take care of myself. I proved that. Come on. Warriors, come out to play. Warriors. So I want to talk briefly about Walter Hill. Um, won't get it too far into his career, but he uh, has said in interviews that every movie he's ever done is a Western, and I can definitely see that in a lot of his movies. Uh, he's had an amazing career. Like I would say, for the most part, the early stuff that he did, the '70s and his '80s work, he had like a long run of like great films where he really didn't have too many fumbles. Um, a lot of his stuff in the '90s bombed, and some of his movies later in his career seemed pretty dated for the times um, and weren't as exciting as his earlier work. But he uh, started out as a assistant director, started writing screenplays, had multiple movies, uh, screenplays produced, uh, including Drowning Pool with Paul Newman for Warner Brothers, and then made his directorial debut with Hard Times and kind of carried on his writing career as, you know, he's one of the few directors I think that's you know been a writer director um, started as a writer and then moved on into directing but kind of continued to write or adapt or be a co-writer on most of the movies that he directed and also did some work you know pr- a lot of producing work uh, worked on aliens worked on the original alien and uh, really had like a pretty huge relationship 
that, you know, as a studio director, uh, his entire career, I mean, I know he made some low budget movies, like including the Warriors, but these were still studio pictures with studio backing and studio advertising. Um, so pretty much out of the gate, everything he's done, he's been a studio director, successful studio director. And certainly has a style of doing movies that are kind of these rough and tumble films, uh, usually packed with violence or machoism. In some of his movies, you know, that that's a theme that kind of, I think, gets a little tiresome. But uh, the first, I don't know, five or six movies he did, I think, are, are pretty solid. He had an enormous hit with 48 Hours with Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte and continued uh, that success with another 48 Hours. He also had a hit with Brewster's Million, one of the only comedies in his career that he really did. And it's kind of funny because like his least rough and tumble movies are the ones that were his most successful. Um, he also had a hit with Crossroads with Ralph Macchio, and it's almost like a buddy road movie. But he's most of his movies throughout his career have always had, they've been usually like a male-dominated cast. Usually the music, has, he, he's been heavily involved in like choosing the music. He's had a long working relationship with guitar guitarist uh, Ry Cooter, who's done a lot of the scores for his films. And, uh, you know, usually his movies are about some sort of co- conflicted character who's like, placed in some sort of huge conflict he's like pushed against the wall and so you know either that main central character or main characters are pushed against the wall and they're they have to sort of like fight their way out and uh, somehow always manages to make it uh, seem somewhat entertaining and uh, and kind of fresh and after going through a lot of his movies recently and I kind of did them all like in a couple days uh, just like straight up back to back aesthetically whether you know he wrote or directed them or produced them, uh, but mainly wrote and directed. Like I appreciated them and saw that they you know were really great movies. So many of them, Southern Comfort aside, and Brewster's Millions, which I do think is funny, but I also really like John Candy and Richard Pryor. Um, did not identify with it because they are so macho, and in a lot of ways, I mean, The Warriors is it's filled with a lot of machismo as well but the other ones and I don't know if it's just that there's a lot of gun violence or you know it's a little bit more aggro um I I couldn't uh I couldn't get into it as much because and and it also could have been that I watched them all like straight up back to back he does kind of fit in that like you know this sort of like action guy movie you know macho movie which he he makes it work you know and I think that you know, and I wonder if he's the one that brought that sediment to the sequel to Aliens because that's a more jacked up, you know, certainly yeah. James Cameron is responsible for that as well. And I don't think it's a bad thing, but I'm just saying, like, it's a different tone that was brought to that movie after, you know, the original Alien. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not saying that I didn't... I feel like you hate Walter Hill right I'm now. I'm not saying that at all. Like, I get why they work. Like, I, I was entertained by Red Heat, totally. It just like it was hard harder for me to get into it because because of that like jacked up bro. Yeah. I no 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 not bro. It's, yeah, not, it's not bro. bro. It's just like macho, just yeah, big dude. It's pre bro. <clears throat> it is pre- <laughs> it predates bro. Yeah. Um, but if These you broless movies, <laughs> but if you, but if you do like action movies, man, yeah. He brings it for sure. And I think the other thing too, and maybe, man, you're just going to, you might kick me off this podcast after this. I think the other thing too is I've never been like a big Western fan in general. And I I know it's about you. I know it's a big letdown, but 
I can recognize when someone does something well. I'm at least well versed in things. I can watch things that I'm yeah. like, you know, isn't my jam, but yeah. I can tell you, but but I can appreciate it. And Walter Hill is is great at what he does. Yeah. That's why when I loaned you a bunch of Walter Hill movies, I left out the Long Riders. I was like, man, Lindsay's not going to watch this one out of all the ones I'm loaning her. No. Yeah. She'll she'll go for Jim Belushi and Schwarzenegger. I, can... I watched Monster in Law for you, so I think you should watch the Long Riders eventually. All right, give it to me. I, I will. will. I will. You watch um, Monster in Law? How many stars would you give Monster in Law out of five? I don't, I don't want to talk about the movie on this podcast. But the... Uh, I think that another thing like with a with a big, big trademark for Walter Hill is that he usually opens every movie with some sort of like kind of like really tight action packed opening. Mm-hmm. You know, all the openings of his films are are pretty, you know, you know, something menacing is about to happen. Yeah. Um, What was the name of the Mickey Rourke one? Johnny Handsome. I really like I kind of enjoy Johnny Handsome. Um, and that was, yeah, macho movie, but. It was like one of those like very like high concept movies for yeah. the for the very late eighties. Dif- yeah, very different. Not not at all what I was expecting. Like sitting like down, a disfigured watching that. a disfigured man who gets plastic surgery and is like made into Mickey Rourke when he comes yeah. out of surgery, and <laughs> and the the people he wants to take revenge on don't recognize him anymore because now he's Mickey Rourke. It was a, it's a good one. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the cast before we get into our picks of the week. Um, this was a. Uh, like we said, an all New York cast. A lot of these actors, it was like one, either their first or second role in like a major film. Uh, and a lot of the, a lot of the actors, you know, none. I don't think anyone in this, in these, this movie is like a household name today. But a lot of them you recognize, and a lot of them had pretty, James Remar might be. Yeah, but yeah. a lot of them had like really large. They they had large careers in the eighties, like as like secondary characters or like you know roles on television television series you know even now yeah james remar i I think is he plays uh, ajax in the film the sort of very aggressive guy that gets eventually uh gets handcuffed to the bench and i I don't doesn't he's one of the few that doesn't make it back to coney island by mercedes rule which is pretty fun i didn't realize that um that she was in this and i was watching that scene i'm like that sure looks like mercedes rule huh she was probably like the biggest name actor at the time when yeah um, James Remar, you might be more familiar with him as Dexter's dad, yeah, or perhaps um, uh, Samantha's sometimes love interest in Sex and the City. Yeah, hey, he was great in Dexter. I yeah, enjoyed, I enjoyed his. Yeah, and you know he played and he played some like heavies in the eighties, like he was in Forty Eight Hours. Like he played some. He you know I think he, did he four Walter Hill films. Yeah, and he right? usually you know played like the villain, and then eventually moved into more. I think like sympathetic and like gentle man roles. Yeah, what a scumbag though in Forty Eight Hours. Yeah, he's a Oof. scumbag. Michael Beck, who plays Swan, who's kind of the the lead guy after the head warrior is is killed, and that's when the character of Swan steps in, played by Michael Beck. You might be familiar with him from Xanadu. He's the lead in that, and also predating the Warriors just by a year was in the movie Mad Men with Sigourney Weaver, and that's the movie that caught Walter Hill's eye. And then there's David Patrick Kelly, who played Luther, the maniac that is the one that killed Cyrus. Uh, he went on to work with Walter Hill several times. He played. He was in Forty Eight Hours. He had kind of a pretty big career in the eighties. You know, he was on uh, a bunch of TV shows. He played Sully in Commando. Uh, he worked with David Lynch for a little while. Did some Twin Peaks. Did uh, he was in Wild at Heart. And 
had a pretty good career in television and I always feel like he brings you know a little something special to the characters that he does and uh he also um this was his very first movie and kind of wild that the Warriors was his first movie and the line that he does the Warriors come out and play was 100% improvised Walter Hill just wanted him to do something because they needed something to kind of ramp up the tension and so he uh on his own grabbed those bottles and started clinking them together and he in uh started saying the Warriors come out and play and now that's become you know one of those most notable quotes of you know film history so he's such a psycho in the Warriors quick shout out to man i love her character and you don't really see anything but her mouth but the character of the dj played by lynn thigpen who um before she passed away was very well known and um had a very distinct voice which was why walter hill used her used her for that role of the dj i think she wasn't expecting that it would just be her mouth shot in those scenes but it certainly fits for this movie and a lot of people in this, you know, some people didn't really go on to do a lot of other acting at, after this, but there were a fair amount of people who did a lot of TV. And you have to also remember at this time, it was a big, big time to do TV and it was kind of the natural progression was to go was to go into TV. And Deborah von Valkenberg, who plays Mercy, is the character that the Warriors pick up kind of from the Orphans gang. She's such a standout in this movie. I really do love her character and not just because she's the basically the only woman in the Warriors, but she is super tough and really holds her own and um yeah. She's Mercy's a badass in this movie. I think everybody does like a kind of like a really outstanding job, especially for such a, a low budget movie with a, a cast of uh, relatively inexperienced players. Justin, do you know who um do you know what character I, I feel like I would be if I were a member of the Warriors gang? I do not. It'd be Vermin. The real Italian one that gets a <laughs> that gets a um wooed by the the all female gang, the Lizzie's. Yeah, okay. I mean <clears throat> Lizzie's. I'm not I'm just speculating that that's yeah, what they're trying yeah. to say. But that would be me. I'm pretty sure that I would be Vermin in that movie. Yeah, there is a girl gang in the Warriors that you know, it's worth mentioning because yeah. they, they, they actually, they're, they're pretty badass. They are. They're, um, they, they go about some, so yeah, all, all the gangs of New York are after the warriors and the Lizzie's see three of the warriors when they get separated, get off the subway and you know, to the warriors, they just look like a group of girls that are like gossiping about the hot guys that just stepped off the subway when in reality, the Lizzie's are like, yeah, we know who that is. We're going to get you back to our apartment. We're going to lock the door and we're going to take all of you guys out. They almost do, too. And they almost yeah. do. <laughs> Whew. Yeah. Well, let's move on to our picks of the week. We'll come back for a little Warriors talk at the end, but we want to get into these picks. So uh, you did, speaking of female gangs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Fox good Fire transition with, here. Uh, <laughs> with Angelina Jolie. What can you tell me about Foxfire? Admittedly, Justin, I've kind of been waiting for a reason to talk about 1996's Foxfire for a long time. It was incredibly formative in my youth. And with the Warriors, which is a story about a gang who was set up to take the fall for something they didn't do, well, Foxfire just kind of seemed appropriate, especially being a gang type of movie that also heavily features a noticeable and very awesome soundtrack. 
So Foxfire is a movie about four high school girls who are inspired by a mysterious teen drifter who happens into their lives, played by Angelina Jolie, to stand up against their science teacher who's been sexually harassing and touching various girls at school. They catch him in the act, semi-beat him up, and then get suspended for three weeks from school. They hang out on the daily in this abandoned house in Portland and slowly learn about each other, learn where they can help and or inspire each other to stand up against their crappy parents or bullying jocks, even a heroin addiction, and even confront violence as an improper way to solve a problem. Next time you think about fucking with some young girl, you think about this first, is what Jolie's character, known as Legs, uh, says to the offending teacher after the girls rough him up. One reason Foxfire always stood out to me, okay, sure, Teen Rebellion can be inspiring if done with some intelligence, and Foxfire does just that, but this is a teen rebel movie which confronts and fights an adult, the patriarchal structure, and features a female lead who teaches others who appear weaker than she, caught in an oppressive high school world, how to stand up for themselves on their own. Although this movie doesn't stay completely as full force as it does when it starts, show me another movie that has guts like this one, isn't completely all-male driven, and actually has teens rebelling, not just paying lip service, and that isn't the legend of Billie Jean. Jolie's introduction is nothing short of the most dramatic Western-style slow pan up from the boot to legs to leather jacket, unveiling that this is not a punk rebel boy that we're used to seeing. She oozes confidence and capability. The minute that you see her, you know this chick is the real deal. Jolie was the most perfect person to play this role, especially at this early time in her career. There's just no bull there, and roles like this were what led to her being put in future strong roles as well. This movie is pretty much a modernized, direct yet simplified version of the Joyce Carol Oates book, Foxfire Confessions of a Girl Gang. I did read that in high school. It's been a while, but man, it's a really good book. There are plenty of similarities between the book and the movie, but a lot of the novel does vastly differ from the movie. Some things are more obvious, some aspects are more explored in the book than the movie, but pretty much all the characters are the same, and the same-ish events occur. And I'm not one who faults any filmmaker for not adhering exactly to a novel. I mean, this book is 300 pages of tiny type. And whatever, however the story varies, it's basically the same. The biggest difference to me is that the girls in the book are a, kind of a 50s street gang and not this mid-90s post-Riot Girl era group of girls that we see in the movie, which is honestly the reason I identified with this movie so much in the first place. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there is gay subtext in this movie. Um, it's undeniable, even if it's never explicitly said. Foxfire is now over 20 years old and times, you know, they have a changed and it's not as big of a deal as it is to come out. But in 1996, Jolie's character being an obvious les was a big deal and not being a creep was an even bigger deal. Her character of legs does fall prey to the gay movie character stereotype of becoming the villain both in the book and the film, but I can solidly say that with the movie, this villainous version of legs in the last 20 minutes is in order to help her heroin-addicted friend um, in the Foxfire gang whose father refuses to help. Jolie's acting like clearly demonstrates the depth of her character in this last act, so I don't like, while it does fall in line with that, I don't know, I'd kind of give it a, a tiny pass. 
And these final moments of the movie also show how much the group has grown and how they've learned to speak up for what's the right thing to do and how they've learned to be stronger, independent people. As for the cast, of course, I've already mentioned Angelina Jolie, but it's hard for me to really imagine anyone else in these roles. Any movie or TV show that I see Hedy Burris in, who plays the main character of Maddie, uh, the narrator too, anything that she's in, I always check out just because of her performance. Like I'm dedicated to her in some way because of this movie, this girl gang that I was led in on at an early age. Um, Jenny Shimizu, who plays Golding, she's always been a well-known model and makes random appearances, including in uh, Jamie Babbitt's Itty Bitty Titty Committee. Sarah Rosenberg kind of dropped off a little bit, but she is perfect for the role of Violet. And lastly, uh, Jenny Lewis stars as the character of Red. Although she's known more nowadays for her musical career, uh, she's was around before Foxfire, but I have to say that I think this role is my favorite of hers. Okay, Troop Beverly Hills and The Wizard are great too, but I actually, like, I, I love her music and just saw her. Justin, you and I just saw her recently. Yes, we did. Um, but I, I love her as an actress. I kind of want to see her in something again. All right, getting back to Foxfire, um, it is littered with montages both of the gang having fun and also in some darker times that they go through and the art of the montage can be overdone but man i don't mind it in this movie it's totally a way to pack in more story more bonding without actually having the dialogue over it and the intense 90s soundtrack creates that emotion that we're supposed to feel for these girls and that can't do anything but help music wise soundtrack is like L7, Patti Smith, Kristen Hirsch, The Cramps, Mazzy Starr, Luscious Jackson, just to name a few. There is a pretty noticeable Candlebox song on on the soundtrack, too. Man, all of these songs are so perfectly placed in the movie. The soundtrack's really awesome. Now, Foxfire kicks into high gear 10 minutes in and leaves your heart with a empty hole in the last few minutes upon rewatching this. And it's been so many years that I, since I've seen it, kind of surprisingly. The last thing Leg says to the character of Maddie is, you're in my heart. And I'd forgotten that line and also how much it meant to me when I was a baby gay at 15. Like when I first saw this and I, yeah, it, it affected me the same way at 37 as it did when I was 15. And I honestly, it's not just the nostalgia factor for this movie. It really is powerful and especially for anyone who's ever felt like an outcast who ever went through something heavy with a group of friends at one time in life and when you're young that stuff is so formative who's ever needed to feel empowered in their life and or maybe lost someone irreplaceable in your life I feel like Foxfire is totally a movie for you this wasn't the after school special movie that I remembered it was actually so much better than I even remembered. And I kind of think I even like it more than I did when I was 15. I don't know. I should have brought it over for you tonight, Justin. Yeah, I haven't I, I haven't seen this movie since the 90s. So I, I'd like a revisit. It's so 90s, like in the best way. I like that you went for a more like personal film for you for this yeah, one. Yeah, I, I don't know why it's been so long since I've watched it because I watched it all the time. And I, I really did go at this movie objectively, kind of thinking that I was going to be like, man, this is, is going to be cheese ball. But it was not. It held up for me, at least. So um, I want to hear about some more Walter Hill. Man, I'm so happy that you're doing Southern Comfort. I liked this movie a lot. 
Yeah, this movie is one actually one of the few Walter Hill movies that I wasn't familiar with uh, that well, and I'm kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to choose this one. Just the first watch of this movie, I really enjoyed it, but the second watch, I really got into it. All the makings of a, a typical Walter Hill movie group of guys, they're National Guardsmen, they are stationed in uh, deep Louisiana, they're doing a training exercise over the over the weekend, and so they don't have so they're they all they have guns but they're they're blanks you know they're they set up in the beginning movie that they're using blanks and they also set up that these guys they're on different levels like mentally in war movies you know you have the characters that are not exactly they're all they're they don't they don't all get along the same they have like different they come from different backgrounds uh, different things in common and they kind of clash a little bit, but they all try to follow this sort of structured hierarchy that, that the military has. And so they're sent on this training exercise and, uh, they get to the swamp of this bayou and there's about, there's about nine of them when they start. And I guess I should start off by saying this movie has an awesome cast. Like, of you know, we've got, uh, Keith Carradine, Peter Coyote that we talked about in Legend of Billy Jean, Fred Ward, who I love, uh, you know, he did a lot of great movies in the 80s, and um, Powers Booth, who's been in a ton of Walter Hill films, and he's, I think this is one of his best performances. And so anyway, they get to a large swamp in they don't, they're like, you know, we don't want to go around this thing. They see these three canoes or four canoes and they're just like, we'll take some of these canoes, we'll leave one and then we'll return them. Majority rules, they take these canoes. While they're out in the middle of the swamp with the canoes, they see two guys in the distance. They can't make out who they are. You know, they're the people that live in the swamps. And they're, you know, one of the guys in the, one of the guardsmen's, you know, in the group hollers out, you know, we, we left one for you. We're going to bring the other ones back. And sort of the goofball guy, their troop has a machine gun and he just starts blasting at him with blanks. Well, the, these guys don't know that he's shooting blanks. They're far away on the bank of the water. And so after the shooting takes place, all the other guys are like, well, you idiot, you know, what are you doing? Essentially a gunshot goes off and it kills our captain uh, he gets shot in the head very violently, and basically the these guys in the bayou that live in the bayou start hunting down the soldiers uh, one by one. This movie uh, I can desc- I've described it after I watched it as Friday the Thirteenth meets Platoon meets Deliverance because it is very much a survivalist movie, and man, the violence in this movie is strong and fierce. Uh, this is not. Uh, this is sort of like the opposite of the warriors. Um, it's pretty grisly. The killings in this are pretty grisly. The soldiers start getting picked off as they fight with each other. Some of them start uh, losing their minds. They apprehend who they think is one of the backwoods uh, Cajun guys and can't really get much information out of them, but they slowly get picked off one by one to where we're just down to Keith Carradine and Powers Booth and the last 20 minutes of this movie, I really don't want to give anything away because if this is a movie that you haven't seen, uh, the last 20 minutes of this kind of like detours off a little bit. Um, it's really tense. It's almost like too intense for me. It's really genre blending, but it is, you know, we've talked about genre blending movies before on the podcast. This one works wholeheartedly. 
I mean, I feel like it's survivalist movie. It's part horror movie. There's also, it's like very character driven. You know, there's an allegory. It's, it's a very well-made taught film currently on Tubi. If you haven't seen it, I really don't want to say too much more about it because I feel like this is a movie that hasn't been seen like a, by a lot of people. I think I would put this up there with one of Walter Hill's best films. I know he's had films that have, uh, are definitely more well-remembered and more successful, but I think this is one of his most well-made movies. I was really surprised out of, um, you know, I told you I was on a Walter Hill binge. This one was clearly like the one that stood out um, amongst all of them. And that uh, three film trifecta comparison there um, (laughs) couldn't have been more spot on. And another connection to Dexter with Walter Hill um, because Keith Carradine as soon as you hear his voice and in Southern Comfort and he's like his voice sounds younger you know and he looks so much younger but you're like oh it's Chief Lundy you know it's like I recognize his voice (laughs) immediately from Dexter oh Lundy so those are our picks of the week Southern Comfort and Foxfire two vastly different movies both available to watch on Tubi right now now here's your Murray moment Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Well, the two things that stick out to me with the Warriors are the music and the New York appeal. And there's no shortage of stories um, involving both of these subjects in Billy Murray. But it's music man Joe Walsh that led me to this Murray moment. Walsh wrote the perfectly placed ending song to the Warriors in the city, which later went on to be included in his uh, other well-known band's discography, The Eagles. So the guy's been around a second. He's pretty much known for being one of the best guitarists out there. And with all this digging with New York City and music led me to an event that both Billy and Joe Walsh contributed their talents to, an organization called God's Love We Deliver. And for the last three years, the group's been putting on an event called Love Rocks, which is a charity event that benefits the organization. So God's Love We Deliver was born in 1985 when a hospice volunteer began bringing food to an HIV AIDS patient who could no longer care for himself. Her compassion took over and she began delivering food to him daily. She knew that just bringing food to this guy like restored some sense of dignity that he'd lost being too sick to take care of himself. One day she was stopped by a minister in her neighborhood who asked what she was doing and she explained she was delivering food to this man and the minister said, you know, you're not just delivering food, you're delivering God's love. What a sweet story. And from that moment forward, the woman knew that she was really onto something. So she teamed up with a friend and the following year they were making and delivering 50 meals a week to HIV and AIDS patients. Well, there's a lot of history there. They're a massive organization now, and now God's Love We Deliver now has what most consider the largest commercial kitchen in all of New York City, and as of 2019, delivers 35,000 meals a week. That's 650,000 gallons of soup. 
a year, Billy said at the most recent Love Rocks benefit for the organization. And over the years, there have been numerous events uh, for the organization. But since 2017, the organization has been orchestrating Love Rocks, a star-studded, every legendary musician you can think of performs it type of benefit concert. And since the beginning, Billy's been hosting. That's right. The man who doesn't commit to much of anything until the very last moment has committed to this organization for the last three years. And I reached out to God's Love We Deliver to see if I could track down why. Unfortunately, as of this moment, I haven't heard back from the producers of Love Rocks to see who reached out to who. But Stephen Cavello, director of donor and corporate partnerships, did say of Billy, he's just a very, very lovely man and seemed very thankful for Billy's involvement uh, with the group. I remember when I first heard of it in the 80s, Billy said of God's Love We Deliver, this group of angels who were bringing food to AIDS and HIV patients, and it was almost like this whisper in the city, you mean there are people who do this all day long? It just kept people alive knowing that there were people just like that in the city. It really kept people alive. And although they were just a baby in New York back then, that whisper turned into a scream when David Geffen, who's probably the wealthiest gay man out there and founder of uh, multiple record labels as well as DreamWorks Pictures made a massive donation and then things really blew up for the organization. In 2001, they opened up their food services to all folks with debilitating illnesses like cancer, MS, COPD, along with their long-lasting commitment to HIV and AIDS patients. They're your neighbors, they're your friends, they're New Yorkers, and they're all here tonight, Billy said that night of the first Love Rocks concert. And when that first concert rolled around in 2017, it seemed like more people wanted to be involved than could actually fit on the bill. Billy was the MC and utilized those Second City improv skills all night between performances by legendary musicians. And the Warriors' Joe Walsh was top billed that year. And when all the performers from the night came out on for one last number at the end of the night, um, it was totally electric. The whole floor shakes, the whole stage shakes, the power of what they're doing, it just gets in you. It's really something, Billy said of the rehearsal before that 2017 show. While every single performer is out on stage for that last number, Billy and Joe shared a mic for the Beatles with a little help from my friends. And come on, what a perfect song to end a benefit like this. And at the 2018 and 19 shows, Billy had plenty of awesome comedy improv moments. He's not a stand-up comic. He's not doing an act. He's just being himself. Whether he's riffing with longtime pals Paul Schaefer or Marty Short and then joined by Chevy Chase for a blues song that Chase totally murders, it's all in good fun. It's all to make people laugh through tough times. Or maybe there's an off-the-cuff Billy moment doing a rap about Kentucky randomly. Or maybe Billy asking audience members to just give him cash while he's up there on stage and then a massive line forms of people throwing wads of cash at him. It's hilarious and inspiring and seemingly pretty much unplanned. I mean... I love a great stand-up comic hosting events, but there's kind of nothing like Billy Murray pulling out whatever comes into his head. Okay, some of these bills are counterfeit, folks. I'm just, I appreciate it, but it's in the spirit. So Billy's joking around while he's getting handed all this cash and rattling off facts about each president on every bill that he grabs from an audience member. Like, he's, the man just knows how to work a crowd. And it feels like mixing the idea of food and music just makes sense and usually always works. 
Specifically for this, food makes people feel better, as does music. This benefit helps feed about 6,800 people a day and 90% of them are below the poverty line. It just brings people together and helps them to feel a little less alone and that people actually do care. Even though I wasn't able to find out how or why Billy got involved with this organization, the fact that he's been involved for so many shows, I mean, it just obviously means something to him. When this organization started in the 80s, Billy said they were fearless when people were terrified and how courageous they were, specifically those first two pioneering women. These are real people who need help and they're all around us, Billy concluded. And you can YouTube a bunch of performances by all the folks at these Love Rocks benefits, including Joe Walsh's performances and Billy and Joe doing the Beatles song. And I know this kind of comes out of of left field a little bit, but that's your Murray moment for the Warriors connected to New York music and Joe Walsh. And now you know about a truly rad organization that Billy obviously cares about too. That's awesome. No, I didn't know that he did that kind of humanitarian work. So because he's not really like, yeah, he's not something he like throws out there. Yeah. I mean, I know that he does do like he, he donates, you know, time and money to things, but he's not really, vocal about it or or you know known for committing to things and that that to me just like totally stuck out yeah no it's awesome well thank you for that murray moment of course well we should wrap up the warriors here before we close things out was there any i think the you know speaking of music the one thing that we didn't quite talk about in the warriors was the music because it's true it's a pretty awesome soundtrack there's a lot of synth happening it's like Uh, synth and rock and it was kind of when like synthesizers were becoming like a big deal it has a pretty cool theme theme music man the opening credits of this the opening credits and that opening song might be i have so many favorite parts in this movie but that opening scene and the titles over that music yeah kind of one of the best this has a great opening title sequence Mm -hmm. and Closing out with the Joe Walsh in the city song when you have a completely instrumental score throughout the yeah. whole movie and then you end with that with that song. Yeah, and and, and there's like a, you know it's daytime out and there mm-hmm. we see the beach for the first time. It's it fits it fits very well. It's it's good that you want to do a different tone for music because it's a the the movie totally kind of changes. Yeah, kind of starts out a little like ominous a little yeah, bit, absolutely. and then it's totally inspiring by the end. And uh, I just want to say one last thing about the Warriors uh, with because uh, because the opening of this is so awesome with the title sequence and the gangs are all like, you know, headed from their respected areas, respected boroughs of New York. But there was an, a different uh, opening that was shot for the Warriors and it's on YouTube if you just look up Warriors deleted scenes, but it's a pretty long sequence. Uh, it's like a probably about 10 minutes of a move of the movie that was going to be Dang. the original opening. And it's, uh, Cleon, the leader of the warriors, uh, is speaking with his girlfriend at Coney Island. And she's like kind of really stressing that he shouldn't go to this thing. And she's like, you've never even been to the Bronx. And it kind of is already setting up how far away mm-hmm. he's going to have to travel. And then there's a whole sequence where, you know, he says like, we have 120 members of the warriors, but you, you know, they, they said we could bring nine nine delegates from our chapter, and so you guys are the chosen ones. And then he kind of like goes through each one and says what they're you know what they're going to bring to this mission. Like 
you know, pointing at one guy and saying, you're going to, you're a heavy, you know, you're going to be the muscle, you know, the Rembrandt, they're like, he's, you know, you're going to be tagging. And, and they do kind of re, I feel like they reshot some stuff so that you, you see a little bit of, the, of that in the opening sequence that's in the theatrical version. And I kind of see why they kind of cut this because it feels, it's not the strongest sequence and it's not the strongest acting of everybody. Um, maybe it's cause it was like something that they shot early on and everybody wasn't comfortable yeah. And it's certainly in its daytime and you kind of lose that whole aspect of like everything taking place at night. And then you only have the daytime shot at the end of the movie, which makes that more powerful. So I can, I can certainly see why the movie was, or I can certainly see why the, the scene was taken out, but it does make the characters make more sense to me when you watch it, because you realize that like, Oh, these guys aren't, they don't really know each other and it's not really set up real clearly that like there's so many warriors and like there's so many members that like these guys probably aren't hanging out in the tight-knit group all the time which is what you kind of think of with a gang you know and and while they're together and so it kind of makes the characters make more sense and you kind of get a little bit about where what they're bringing to to the to the trip that they're going on but regardless it's it's interesting it's worth checking out on youtube especially if you're a fan of the warriors and you haven't seen it i didn't even know that that scene existed till we started digging in on research with this and it was pretty cool to watch that uh, yeah that's definitely very cool i like you i can completely understand why it was taken out because this the strength of this movie if it starts right at the opening and that title sequence and so much foreshadowing in that movie um, happens in the first couple minutes and it, it makes sense that you start the movie out a- at night and you end it in the yeah. day well uh what do we have coming up next episode we're oh wow we're really getting we're winding down here our next episode is, it is our be? it's our last episode of the year and then we're going to take a one month break and we're going to end it out on a on a bang with uh, Thelma and Louise. Do you remember that one? Yeah. You might remember the title, but when's the last time you saw it? It's been a while. It's, it's worth it's worth a revisit. And we're uh, doing another Ridley Scott movie. Yeah. And this is probably, my outside of Alien, probably my second favorite Ridley Scott film. And I'm, I'm saying that, I'll say that boldly, including the fact that he has Blade Runner in his... Jay! I like this better than Blade Runner. Thelma and Louise. Yeah, so do I. Not gonna lie. I mean, so, they're both great. Yeah, but vastly different. We'll get reasons. we'll get way into our our personal. Uh, I can't wait to revisit this one. It has been a hot second. Yeah. But I know that I love it, and yeah. But yeah, can't wait. Our last. Uh, so next up is our last episode of the year, and that's Thelma and Louise. Um, if you uh, have been following us, thank you so much. Uh, We've been getting a few more reviews on Apple iTunes. If you haven't reviewed us and you're a big fan of the podcast and you use iTunes, uh, it really helps us a lot. It, it just it's, it's nice to have uh, build up our review, build up our ratings. If you're one who streams and doesn't download, if you feel like downloading an episode every now and then, it helps us uh, register how many pe- how many listeners we have and in what areas. Uh, what areas people are listening from what countries yeah. they're listening from yeah. it's always exciting when one one month we'll have uh texas will be our biggest listen to see, we month got five and, downloads in portugal right, the other yeah, day yeah. so it's it's, <laughs> it's it's always exciting to see like where we're but uh streams don't register for you know 
the way we look yeah. at you know our numbers so downloads always help us to know uh, where you're listening from but uh regardless even if you're streaming we thank can't you thank you enough so but you can find us on social media we're on instagram we're on facebook we're on twitter uh, if you want to check out old episodes that are no longer uh, streaming or available to download, you can find our entire archive at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. And if you ever want to contact us directly, you can reach us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys.